Welcome to The Stone Wolves, a Galactic Football League novella. Written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins. Performed by Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves is also available as a Kindle ebook from Amazon.com or as a full-length audiobook from Audible.com. To find links for those items, go to scottsigler.com slash thestonewolves, one word. Hello, junkies. I'm recording this on January 6th, a dark day in American history, so the mood here is a little bit muted. I am over 86% done with GFL Book 7's second draft. As usual, I make no promises as to when it will be done. And besides, it's still got to go to Big John Viscara for a continuity review anyway, so don't get your undies in a bunch thinking it's right around the corner. Let's get you caught up on the story so far, and then we're all going to go take a civics class. Previously on The Stone Wolves, Killian and his crew have quietly entered the borehole facility through a secret entrance. Now inside, however, they can't avoid the guards. As they push toward Redwire's cell, things are about to get violent. Chapter 14 Contact with the enemy. Two more minutes. Killian, Zan, and Beans waited in the hallway just outside the maintenance tunnel's access hatch, a security blind spot set up by Sakacorn. The doctor remained at the Nemeric terminal with Aya. Aya would have to fend for herself in the romance category. Killian had faith the girl could manage on her own. With the change of plan, it would not do for Sakacorn to be seen leading a bunch of thugs through the prison hallways. Not only did the good doctor have a chance of seeing this escape through and getting paid, but her original plan might remain intact, meaning she could seek out a second payday. Good for her. La 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 love the decant, Bean said, his Schmeck suit's volume turned down low. Decor, Zan corrected, half as loud as Bean's had been. Silence, Killian said. Both Schmecks fell quiet. Beans was so twitchy, so excitable, it was damn near impossible for him to shut up, even in a time like this. Zan, though, knew better. She was on edge. Of course she was. Killian had literally walked them into a secret prison. Get caught here, and here they would stay for the rest of their inevitably short lives all to save someone Killian hadn't seen in decades. Worth it? For what Red Wire had done for Quentin, yes, it was worth it. The interior of the borehole was a cheerless place. Dimly lit, sharp corners, no creature comforts. Oppressive and claustrophobic in a strange, undefinable way. Was something about the air, perhaps. It smelled musty, or of worksite concrete dust. At least there were flat floors and walls, an accommodation for the humans that made up most of the staff. Here, bats operated mainly as fighter pilots and emergency security. If that emergency security had to be called out, entropic blasts for anyone outside of their cell, most likely. Bat soldiers were not known for their understanding or subtlety. 
The access tunnels from the secondary landing shaft exemplified the Quith industrial style. Functional, simple, efficient. And yet those areas still felt lived in, even after decades of little or no use. The bats modified ships and buildings as they saw fit, not giving a rat's ass about how those modifications affected other species, even in a place like the borehole, which was staffed almost exclusively with non-Craterachians. When you ran the galaxy, it seemed, you didn't have to worry about other species. Killian heard Aya's quiet voice in his combud. Fifteen seconds, she said. Get ready. Killian's hands acted on their own, checked the hilt of his stun gun sidearm, checked the controls of his void cloak, made sure everything was ready to roll. Part of him wished he had the orphaner strapped to his left thigh, but the Nazdor kept that part quiet. Mostly quiet, anyway. Fanaka's hands went through a similar ritual, patting at pockets, ammo pouches, and her pistols, making sure everything was where it was supposed to be. Maybe it was a bad idea to give her the weapons back, but hopefully she'd have the good sense not to use them unless absolutely necessary. And if it came to that, Killian didn't want his old comrade saddled with non-lethals. Ten seconds, Aya said. Sackacorn had timed the mission to take place in the middle of a shift, hopefully when the on-duty staff were at their peak of boredom and the off-duty staff were relaxing, not yet preparing for their next shift. That would slow reaction time. Only a small amount, most likely, but in a mission like this, every second of advantage counted. Five, Aya said. Four, three, two, one. Killian heard and felt a thrum that vibrated throughout the facility, possibly throughout the asteroid. The hallway's lights faded, then blinked out. Faint blue lights along the ceiling lit up. Enough illumination for most people to not walk into a wall, perhaps, but that was about it. For Killian's modified eyes, the hallway looked bright as day. He felt gravity fade away, and he floated upward, ever so slightly. Sound off, he said. I'm Alpha. Beta, Schmegzan said. Gamma, Bean said. Delta, Fanaka said. Ancient letters so that names, real or assumed, would not be used. Aya was Epsilon. Sakacorn wasn't part of the communication, as her voice print was undoubtedly on file, and any electronic communication with her might be captured and stored somewhere in the borehole system. If the doctor had anything to say, it would be routed through Aya, and Aya would refer to the doctor as Zeta. Let's move, Killian said. Quiet and steady. He and Fanaka pushed down the hall kicking toward a wall at an angle, hitting it with his feet, pushing off across the hall at an angle, and so on. Beans used small air thrusters to maneuver, the same thrusters he used for most of his repair duties on the Oleron's exterior. Zan's Schmeck had wings. The lack of gravity meant little to her. Killing and Fanaka had plenty of zero-g experience. Younger sentients, like Aya and hopefully most of the guards working the prison, did not. Before the takeover, an advancement in anti-grav tech had begun sweeping the galaxy. Instead of a string of grav wells placed throughout a ship or facility and powered from a central power plant, engineers used a web of microscopic grav wells embedded into floor material. In some cases, artificial grav could literally be painted on. Since the takeover, 
Artificial grab was seemingly everywhere and always on. There were well-traveled people Aya's age and much older who had never experienced zero-g and likely never would. Nowadays, even derelict spacecraft had working gravity. Only old, old things, like this place or the Olorun, had problems when the power went out, and even then, all the power had to go out. Approaching the corner, Killian said. Be ready. He, Beans, and Zan had to descend an elevator shaft two levels to reach Redwire's private cell block. That elevator would be at the end of the corridor coming up on the right. Killian kicked off the left-hand wall, came around the corner. A quith worker floated in midair, his flailing body spinning one way, assorted tools another. Bits and pieces of what he'd been using to repair a wall panel drifted this way and that. Delta, Killian said. Restrain. Killian quietly brushed the floating tools out of his way, angled up to the ceiling, and slid just above the flailing worker. Fanaka misjudged the distance and bumped the quith, while Zan flew under them both, dodging the detritus. The worker squeaked in alarm as Beans' schmeck hands grabbed him, quickly wrapped him in metal wire, binding the worker's legs as well as both sets of arms. Killian reached the elevator. Closed. This facility had eight levels. Hopefully, the elevator was several levels above, otherwise, they would have to cut through it and the door to descend to Redwire's block. Beta, Killian said. Start cutting. Zan Schmeck flew up to the door. The severed teddy bear head seemed to look at it for a moment, then an oddly shaped mechanical arm extended from the body and the blinding white light of a blowtorch flame went to work. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. On a remote island in Frigid Lake Superior, a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. I am monitored the comms listening to the skipper guide the rest of the crew through the process of getting to the prisoner. Being left behind was a mixed bag. On the good side, there was less risk of getting gunned down, while on the bad side, she had to stay here and endure Sackacorn's comments and stares. Back off, Aya said. I need to watch what you're doing, Sackacorn said. You may be a whiz programmer, but I know the borehole system better than anyone. 
Maybe that had been true until I arrived, but it wasn't true any longer. Even the Nemerick's creators said that programming and controlling one was more about feel than granular knowledge, more art than science, and Aya was an artist in her element. For the third time since Killian and the others had gone through the access hatch, Sakakorn drifted closer, accidentally pressing up against Aya. Aya gave her a hard shoulder. Sakakorn floated backward, arms whipping to catch herself on the access tunnel's walls, pipes, and panels. Hey, the doctor said, you don't have to be rough. Aya closed her eyes, having experienced people like the doctor so many times she knew what tired old line would come next. Unless you like it rough, Sakakorn said. Aya kept her hands on the Nemeric terminal. I know this system better than you ever could, Aya said, which means if something bad happens to you, I can still get us out of here. Understand? Sakakorn's head reared back slightly. Are you threatening me? You're plenty smart enough to know the answer to that. She tried to push her fear and disgust down as she held the doctor's gaze. The woman was older, bigger, stronger. You usually didn't have to fear a woman trying to have her way with you, but sometimes, maybe this time, you did. I get it, Sakakorn said. I won't touch you again. Aya didn't want violence. She wanted this woman to stop touching her, to stop looking at her. Epsilon, this is Alpha. You copy? Aya heard the skipper's voice in her comm bud. Her eyes snapped back to the terminal. Epsilon here. We're at point B, about to move to C. Anything we need to know? Aya liked Skipper, liked him a lot, but sometimes the man was oblivious to, well, to the obvious. The total power shutdown means I can't see anything where you are, Aya said. Be careful. Okay, so Skipper wasn't the only one who could say something obvious. Be ready, Epsilon, Skipper said. Do what you can to make sure we get out of here. Alpha. Out. Based on Sakakorn's timeline, it would be another 15 minutes or so until Skipper and the others returned. Aya flashed a glance at Sakakorn. The woman was still keeping her distance. 15 minutes of time to kill? Aya, the artist, went back to her craft. 10 feet long, at least 400 pounds. With six kicking legs and four flailing arms, a key guard that didn't know how to operate in zero-g was quite a thing to see. The whipping, bending sentient was so big it took up most of the corridor. I'll take it out, Fanaka said. Killian heard the telltale sound of a revolver sliding out of its holster. Without looking, he reached to his right. To the source of that sound, his hand found Fanaka's wrist, held it tight. No he said. She tried to yank her arm free. Even if he'd been drunk and on a double dose of Naz, she couldn't have pulled away from his grip. Don't be an idiot, she said. Look at the size of it. We try to go past and it kicks me. I'll break in half. The key's vocal tubes bleated out a cry for help. The sentient wasn't just poorly trained. It didn't seem suited for guard work of any kind. Beta, Killian said. Take care of it. Zan's Schmeck buzzed forward. An arm extended and touched the out-of-control key guard. 
an audible zap of electricity, a flash of blue light, and the key stopped moving. Inertia kept turning it slowly until it bumped against a wall. Zan flew atop the key, buzzed down, pressing the big, unconscious sentient to the floor. Killian released Fanaka's wrist. There's better ways than bullets, he said. She holstered her pistol. Until there's not. There was something off about her, something even more hostile than anything he remembered from the past. Did she want to kill? Delta, bind the guard, Killian said, then pushed off the wall, floating above both Zan and the key. Heavy, closed doors on either side. No old-timey metal bars here. Each cell was sealed up tight, with no way to slip through or reach out. Some of the doors had a small pane of crystal, and in some of those, faces stared out. Human variants. A heavy G. A quith leader. Killian briefly wondered what they had done to be locked up here. He realized he didn't care. No alarms. No swarming guards. Aya's skills were on display. Red wire cell block was just ahead. Killian saw the shotgun an instant before it fired. Ducked back down as a slug took a chunk of the corner where his face had just been. A very accurate shot, considering the lack of gravity and almost complete lack of light. Red wire cell block guard had accessed the emergency weapons. Epsilon, we have a guard with a firearm. Zeta tells me that's probably Carmago, Aya said. He was a League of Planets Marine. Unlike most of the sentients working at the borehole, Carmago would have received extensive zero-G training. That was part and parcel of a Marine service life, and that kind of training was drilled in so deep it wouldn't go away simply due to years of lack of use. Zeta knew this guy was a soldier and didn't tell us, Killian said. A pause. Zeta says he is a horrible person, Aya said. Zeta says, kill him, no one will miss him. Killian's jaw clenched, his teeth ground. It would be so easy to take out the floating guard. Fanaka could do it with a couple of shots, or, better yet, Killian could take her pistols and drop Carmago in seconds. One death. It wasn't like he'd come in guns a-blazing, right? There could have been dozens of corpses already, so was one unavoidable death really so bad? Yes, because, so far at least, this man's death was not unavoidable. Beta, Killian said, can you give me covering fire with your lethals, but not hit that guard? It's dark enough I can get to him if there's a distraction. Absolutely, Shmexan said. Fanaka shook her head. This is insane. We're wasting time. Just let me shoot the bastard. If the bat guards come flying in, it's going to be a bloodbath one way or another. Killian ignored her, but she was right. It was only a matter of moments before the complement of bat guards swept through this corridor, their entropic rifles dissolving flesh. He had to move now. Here we go, Killian said. Beta only. Fire. Now. 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 Zan Schmeck floated out from behind the corner. Her belly-mounted carbine cracked off rounds. Two per second, a steady pulse 
that filled the corridor with staccato orange flashes. In almost the same instant, Killian dropped down and activated his void cloak's light-bending camouflage. There was no sound, no vibrating sensation to tell him it was working. He just knew, from long practice, what the cloak would do, knew how it worked. He moved around the corner and pushed forward fast, his belly scraping the floor. If Carmago had night vision, he might have been able to see killing as little more than a ripple in the darkness, but bullets flying one's way had a tendency to make one miss such details. Carmago kept his cover behind the door, and he fired back. Killian could tell by the sounds passing above him that the shotgun was loaded with alternate rounds of slugs and shot. Killian reached the door. Like a cobra rising to strike, he stood and snatched the shotgun from Carmago's hand. Surprised, the guard took a step back. As Killian came through the door, Carmago drew a stun stick from a thigh holster. Killian heard the crackle of electricity, but the guard didn't get a chance to use the weapon. Killian drove the shotgun butt into Carmago's helmet. The guard grunted, fell back, floating and spinning, on the edge of consciousness. The stun stick slipped from his grip, twirled in midair. Killian grabbed it, jammed it into the guard's back. Carmago twitched violently, then stopped moving. Delta, get up here, Killian said. You and Gamma guard the corridor. Make sure we're clear to move out. Six doors on the cell block all closed. According to Sakakorn, red wire was in the middle cell on the left. The moment caught up with Killian hit him hard. He'd risked his life and the lives of his crew to save this sentient, to save the man who had looked out for his only living son. The door had a wheel lock. Killian spun it. Just as Fanaka reached him, he pulled the thick cell door open. Metal hinges screeched like an animal in pain a room roughly carved out of stone. In the center of the cell, curled into the fetal position and hovering a few centimeters above the floor, was red wire. Fanaka turned on a flashlight, aimed it at the man. The bleach-white skin of a tower native. Blue, black, and yellow bruises on his back and shoulders, all across his naked body. Red, swollen welts from a recent beating. Oh, Red, Fanaka said, her voice a husk. Look what they did to you. She moved into the cell, Killian at her heels. Fanaka gently held the floating man. It's Hopscotch, she said, and Killer is with me. We're here to get you out. Killian was annoyed she'd used their old call signs, but only slightly. Aya had shut everything down and the battered man needed to hear the names of his old comrades. Redwire slowly untucked his head. Broken nose. Right eye swollen almost shut. Despite the damage, he managed a small, weak smile. The stone wolves, he said. I can't believe it. Killian heard Aya's voice in his comm bud. Alpha, you'd better be on the move, she said. Staffers are working the main Nemrick control node, trying to bring things back online. They got some surveillance working. I shut it down quick, but before I did, I saw at least seven bats on level three, fully armed and armored. Looks like they're in a fast search pattern, maybe going down level by level. As beat up as Redwire was, it was impossible to ignore the man's physique. 
He was a third-string GFL quarterback, not a star by any definition of the word. Yet even having been cooped up here for weeks, he still had the body of a Greek god. Six foot four, probably 250 pounds. If the bats came down here, there was no choice but to kill them. There was still a chance to pull this off with no casualties. We need to move, Killian said. Let me help you. He shut down the Void Cloak stealth mode, took the cloak off, and fastened it around Redwire's shoulders. It would give him some protection, some warmth. Fanaka was at the door first, one pistol drawn. Killian didn't bother telling her to holster it, because after seeing Redwire, he knew Fanaka was done playing nice. Hopefully, they could get out of the facility without encountering another threat. Beta, Gamma, get ready to move, Killian said. We have the package coming to you. You have been listening to The Stone Wolves, a GFL novella. Written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins. Performed by Scott Sigler. Follow Scott on Twitter and at Instagram where he is at Scott Sigler. And on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves was directed by A. Sigler, engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Copyright 2021 Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is the song Battle Cry by the band Super Weapon. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.